2 Corinthians chapter 13. Heavenly Father, we've had several weeks of studying this book. One of the principal letters that the Apostle Paul shared with the New Testament church. We've gained insight into the heart of Paul and into the life of the church in Corinth. We have seen the inner workings of an early church body. We have seen all of the blessings that were there in the fellowship, the way it was able to forgive and reinstate a sinning member, and all of the problems that were still existing at the end of this letter. And it's given us great insight into the kinds of things that we face in our day. And so, Father, we pray that in these final verses, as Paul winds it all down, that we walk away with those lessons that you have tonight, this week, for us out of this chapter. I thank you, Lord, that Paul was used so mightily, and what a tremendous example he is to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You probably heard the story of the old minister who loved to tell about his personal testimony, his experience of how he survived the Johnstown flood. He uh, would often tell this story even to people who had heard it time and time again. His family, his relatives, his friends, his church members were getting kind of tired of it, but he kept telling it, and he, he even grew in detail each time he told it. But it was kind of a thing like, can you up this one? Can you do better than this? It was like, I want to show you up. This is what I've experienced. I survived the Johnstown flood. Well, the old guy died, and he was taken into heaven, and he was there where all the saints were gathered talking about what the Lord did in their lives. And so this guy runs up to Peter, and he says, hey, i got the greatest story that I'd like to share with all these saints in heaven about how I survived the Johnstown flood. Do you think I could tell it tonight when we have this great time of sharing? Peter looked at him and said, Well, sure, you may, but just realize that Noah is in the audience tonight. <laughs> Puts a whole different spin on it when you know somebody who survived the great flood is listening to your story about how you survived a local flood. Well, there was a similar situation that was happening in this little church of Corinth. There were a group of people, Judaizers, if you remember we called them, legalistic believers who loved to share their own background and letters of recommendation. They could produce documentation, letters, from some important person or group in Jerusalem validating who they were. And so they would sort of wave these letters around while calling Paul into question. Where are his credentials? Look what we've done. Look what we've done. We're such great people. But Paul was in the audience. And looking back over history, that's quite a guy to have in the audience because he founded most of the New Testament churches. By the way, he wrote most of the New Testament. So God used this man mightily, and yet we know something about Paul. He didn't like to brag about it. It was only when he was forced to boast in the closing chapters of this book, beginning in chapter 10, 11, all the way to the end, that he has to sort of fortify his position as being an apostle. He didn't want to brag. He was a humble man. He was a gentle man. It says in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, He has shown thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. That was Paul. But now, as we've already mentioned, backed into a corner, he produces the proof of his authority as an apostle. And this very last chapter, which isn't a long one, it's a short one, He turns it up, man. He turns it all the way up to 10 and basically says, okay, you want to fight? You want me to get contentious? You want me to come there with authority? I don't want to do this. But if I have to come there with authority to put these parasites in their place and get them out of a place of influence, I'll do it. And that's sort of where chapter 13 picks up 
from chapter 12. Paul is dealing with pride, but he wants to deal with it in humility. He is careful in his boasting not to be prideful. In fact, you've noticed this about Paul. He'll say a few things, and then he'll kind of pull back and go, Why am I doing this? I want to boast only in the Lord. Pride will get you into trouble, you know. It was pride that caused Lucifer to fall from heaven. It was pride that put Adam and Eve out of the garden. It was pride that cost Saul, the first king of Israel, his kingdom. It was pride that lowered Nebuchadnezzar to the level of an animal. It was pride that was destroying some of the New Testament churches. Corinth was one of them. The best approach, the approach of Jesus, is the approach of humility. And that is Paul's uh, M.O. for the most part, until he really has to. He says, This will be the third time I am coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word will be established. Now, Now listen to the tone. I have told you before and foretell you as if I were present the second time, And now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. Sometimes we need to take broken-hearted people and apply the salve of healing to their situation. The world will beat us up. We get afflicted and thus we need to comfort the afflicted. But there are other times, as in this case, where you need to afflict the comfortable. And this church was tolerating, as we know, everything. Incest, immorality, division, false doctrine, and this group called Judaizers, legalists, who are calling Paul into question. So he comes pretty heavy, pretty hard and heavy here. Sometimes that's important. Paul wrote to young Timothy, words to a young minister just sort of getting off the ground in his ministry to the Lord. Preach the word, he said to Timothy. Be ready, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with all long-suffering and doctrine. And there's a balance, those three elements, where there's correction, loving, strong, biblical correction. Sometimes rebuke is necessary. And then encouragement. Come on, you can do it. And Paul knew how to comfort the afflicted as well as to afflict the comfortable. I love what Martin Luther said. He said, a preacher needs to be both a soldier as well as a shepherd. He needs to nourish. Oh, he needs to teach. But he should have teeth in his mouth and be ready to bite and to fight when necessary. And so Paul, like an animal, backed into a corner, knowing that this could mean the life of this church, says, if I come again, if you want it to be this way, I will not spare. Now, we know something about Corinth, don't we? May I just remind you that it was a permissive culture? Just so you know the background of these Christians... In all fairness to them, it wasn't easy to be a Christian in Corinth. There was a term that had been coined, Corinthiadzestai, or to play the Corinthian. It was a, a phrase that was used at that time that if you said it, oh, he's acting like a Corinthian, people knew what you meant. He was a living a debauched, loose, profligate life. And we know that in Corinth there was a temple on the Acropolis, the temple to Aphrodite, where a hundred prostitutes slash priestesses would come down into the city at night and seduce the men of the city for profit and use the money for the worship of the temple of Aphrodite. So with that kind of stuff going on, another saying went abroad that said, not every man can afford a trip to Corinth. It became known as a very loose place, a place that men would go when they wanted sort of a little off time from business. They would go to Corinth. A church was established there. 
So here you have this group of people in the midst of such a wicked city. It'd be like a church in Las Vegas or San Francisco or Hollywood. We're aware that in these areas there's lots of pressure. Well, now today it's everywhere because of the media, television piped into every home. The, The values of the world are constantly barraging us. So to maintain a strong witness gets harder and harder. Now, besides that, there was this idea that because of the Greek philosophers and the eloquence with which oratory had been used in the past, Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, and others, pre- and post-Socratic philosophers, they, they uh, placed a high emphasis on the ability to speak well. They looked down upon Paul. Where are his credentials? We're Greeks some of us. Others of us are Jews from Jerusalem. But we come to you with power. Paul comes to you in weakness. And Paul says, not this time. You want me to come in power. What you call weakness is gentleness. But if you want me to turn it up, let's go for it. So this will be the third time I am coming to you. Previously, he came in humility. He's willing to come in authority by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word will be established he is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 19 I find that interesting because here's the context in Deuteronomy it says one witness shall not rise against a man to give an accusation but only by the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established And then it continues. If a man rises up and accuses his brother of something, make a careful inquiry as to whether this man's witness is true or not. And if he's a false witness, if he's making up a story, if he's lying to slander somebody's reputation, then whatever he wants to have done to that person, whatever he's accusing that person of and the punishment that he says is deserving of the one he is accusing, that punishment shall be enacted on him. Now, Jesus used Deuteronomy 19 as well. Remember in Matthew 18 when he deals with how to correct a sinning brother or sister in the fellowship? He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 19. Matthew 18 has become sort of a a catchphrase for church discipline. You've heard maybe somebody say, well, we need to enact Matthew 18 on this person. And it's true that small problems in a church wouldn't become as great a problem in many churches if Matthew 18 were followed out, as Jesus said. It'd be good if we turned to it and looked at it for just a moment. Go to Matthew chapter 18. Verse 15, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and gossip about him. No, but I tell you, you would think by watching some Christians in some of our Christian churches that that's what it meant. Instead of telling the person directly, I'm offended, you offended me, you caused me to actually sin. We tell others, oh, I'm concerned about so-and-so. Would you be my prayer partner over this? Instead of going directly to the person. It says, and tell him his fault between you and him. Notice that word, alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. If he will not hear you, here's step two. Take with you one or two, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Those are the words of your Savior. Go and deal with it directly, alone. If they don't hear you alone, then get your audience. But don't talk to them. Bring them in that confrontation. Now... We don't like that. We may not. We, we may have underlined every promise on this page but that one. 
because that's hard to do. In fact, I've heard the other sentiment expressed. If you dare make an evaluation, if you dare make a confrontation, somebody will raise the flag of Matthew 7. Hey, wait a minute. Judge not, lest ye be judged. As if that means you cannot think, you cannot evaluate critically, you cannot discern between right and wrong. And if you dare speak up, you are being divisive. It's not at all what it means. In fact, listen to the words of Jesus in that section. Jesus right after that says this, If you notice a speck in your brother's eye, and you have a plank in your eye, what did Jesus say to do? Remove the plank in your eye so that you may see to take out the speck in your brother's eye. Not shine it on, walk away, say, you like my plank? Love your speck. Adios. No, you, you, you deal with your problem so that you can see clearly after making self-evaluation in evaluating that person clearly. It is a call to discernment, not hypocritical, not censorious judgment, but evaluating correctly. In fact, you're mandated to. Jesus says, don't judge by appearance, but judge a righteous judgment. It's a mandate for the church to think clearly. What if Elijah thought the way some Christians thought? He never would have confronted Ahab or Jezebel. He would have just said, well... You really believe sincerely in Baal and false worship? It's okay. What if Daniel would have thought that? What if Peter and John would have thought that way? They never would have confronted Jerusalem like they did. Paul never would have confronted the Judaizers. Jesus never would have said what he said in Matthew 23. I don't recommend it for bedtime reading, but... Look at Matthew 23 sometime, not tonight. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, man. You are clean on the outside and full of death on the inside. And put that next to judge not, lest ye be judged. You have to balance it all out. Here Jesus says, go directly, deal with it, and then you can see to help that other person. So... If he refuses to hear, tell it to the church. If he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Remember Jesus said, and this is what Paul is doing, by the way. You can tell false prophets by their fruit. So, you're right. You're not called to be a judge. You are called to be a fruit inspector. So somebody says, you're judging me. No, I'm not. I'm just inspecting the fruit. But judge a righteous judgment. And Paul does that. He, he notices here that there is a problem with him, and he's going to call uh, them to examine themselves as a church as well as individuals. I have told you before, verse 2, chapter 13, sorry, 2 Corinthians 13. Back to that again. And foretell as if I were present the second time. Now he said he's coming the third time. He's re reminiscing the two times he has been there in the past. Now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to the rest. That's that group of legalists. That's those ones influencing the church the wrong way. If I come again, I will not spare Since you seek proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty. He's basically saying he's ready to discipline those unrepentant ones when he comes again. By the way, discipline is a demonstration of love, right, parents? You discipline your children because you love them and you don't want them to grow up to be psychos. And so there is a loving, not filled with anger, but a loving discipline. You're angry at the sin and the possibility of what they could turn into, so you step in to help mold that personality. That's love. Church discipline is the proof of church love. Whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. 
And so the Lord's servants should do that as well in a loving way, speaking the truth as Paul wrote to the Ephesians in love. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you but mighty. Now remember, they accuse Paul of being a weakling, a wimp. Oh, the guy's high and mighty and powerful in his letters, but get him up close, get him in person. Ha! He's not even a powerful speaker. So, when Paul says... I won't spare. Uh, The word that he used is to spare in a battle. He says, okay, I'm ready for the big guns now. Coming the third time, I'm going to declare war on these people. I'm going to make a separation between them. I have to underscore something, lest you think Paul just having a real bad apostle day again. He's just in a bad mood. When he got to this letter, he's just kind of letting it all out. And he's saying things that are in the flesh. He's not. He really is gentle. I want you to compare this because he gets even a little heavier in the next couple verses. But but stop and go back to chapter 1 for just a moment. Hear his heart. Here's his heart. And this is the reason now that he shared his heart so tenderly in chapter 1 to balance this all out. Verse 23 of the first chapter. Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. I didn't want to come and verbally do what I'm about to do this third time. That's why I didn't come to Corinth was to spare you. Not that we have dominion over your faith. We're not your personal shepherd. I'm not your boss. God is your boss. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy. By faith you stand. But I determined this within myself that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? Paul had the heart of Jesus. You know, Jesus had all power, right? He said, all authority on heaven and earth is given to me. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was about to be arrested. As they were arresting him, Peter drew a sword, missed, cut a guy's ear off. You know the story. Jesus just conveniently put the ear back on, then said, now, Peter, put your sword away. Don't you realize that if I wanted to, I could call 12 legions of angels right now and put all this stuff to rest, put it away. He didn't call upon 12 legions of angels. He did not exercise his power and authority at that point. He emptied himself. He voluntarily went to the cross, Isaiah 53. He was afflicted. He was oppressed. He opened not his mouth. He was like a lamb led before his shears, which is silent. He opened not his mouth, it says twice. Jesus never demanded people do stuff, right? He always let people make their own choices. A good lesson for spiritual leaders who try to manipulate others by heavy-handed tactics like the Judaizers. Paul was like Jesus, coming gentle. Paul never said, now, you bow before me. I'm a holy apostle of God. I have authority. I demand respect. Why should you demand respect? You're a slave, right? A servant That's what the minister is. So he let these people make their own choices. But to spare the churches getting off the wrong track completely, he knows if need be he would come to Corinth and he would put down the hammer. That's what that's all about. Now back to our text. Look at verse 4. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Jesus came in weakness. Not that he is weak. He had all power, all authority, could command 12 legions of angels. But he came in voluntary submission, in weakness, but was raised in power. And Paul said, I come in the spirit of Jesus, but if you want, I can come in the power that is now afforded in his resurrection. Examine yourselves, he says, as to whether you are in the faith. Prove yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? If you have a King Jimmy, it says reprobate. 
But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. If you have a watch right now, my watch says 8.02. This is a historic moment. Do you know that in history? Did you look at some of the news clips yesterday and today about this exact time? At 8.02 on February the 20th now, 2002, it's historic. It's a date that hasn't happened. It'll never happen again, and I'll tell you why. But the last time it happened was a 1,000 years ago. Because you see, at precisely 8.02 right now, during these few seconds, in military time, it reads 20.02. The date is 2002, the 20th day of February, 2002. So it's 2002, 2002-2002. The last time that happened was at 10.01, back on January the 10th in the year 1001. And because the clock only goes up to 2359, this will never happen again. This is a historic moment. And it's just gone by. I thought you should know it, not only because it's fun, but as they were going through this on the news today, one of the uh, news reporters said, uh, what do you think, uh, they were asking a chronographer this, a a guy who deals with time, who does for a living, what should we do with this? He goes, I don't know, you know, it's uh, pretty historic, you know, maybe we should all throw a party. (laughs) Because it is a historic evening, Better yet, in light of our text, it would be best to make a self-evaluation. And if our lives are not what they spiritually should be, as you heard in the testimony tonight, after examining themselves, those two realized, I need to really walk with the Lord. That would be fitting to do on such a historic occasion. Because time passes so quickly, it's best to evaluate how are we living in the light of it. He says... Examine yourselves. Now, remember back in verse 3, he says, You seek a proof of Christ speaking in me. Here you are turning the magnifying glass on me. Let's turn it around back on you. You examine yourself. The easiest thing to do is to point out the failures, inconsistency, and sin in another person. In fact, a lot of people do it just to make themselves look good. Paul says, Now I'm pushing that back on you, Judaizers. And you, Corinthians, you examine yourselves. And what should we examine ourselves about? Whether you are in the faith, prove yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified, or a counterfeit would be another translation. Are you born again? Jesus said, unless you're born again you won't get into heaven. You won't see the kingdom of God. It's funny how people use that term. They, they talk about, oh, those born-againers, you know. I'm not a born-againer. I'm a Christian, but I'm not a born-again one. That's an ignorant statement. I understand the statement. I know how, how a person can think that, but it's an ignorant one. Because if you're not born again, you ain't saved. The only kind of Christian is a born-again one, right? Jesus said, unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. A spiritual rebirth. Have you been born again? Do you know you're in the faith? Examine yourselves. Prove yourselves. Now, I used to hear people say, well, I hope so. (laughs) I can tell you tonight, I know so. I know that if I were to die tonight, I would be immediately in heaven. Well, that's arrogant. No. It's really humble because, you see, to get to that place, you have to realize you're a sinner and you can't get to heaven on your own, but you're going to lean all of your weight, all of your confidence, all of your trust in not your work, not your goodness, not your religion, not your church attendance, not the bumper stickers on your car, but on what Jesus did, period. Can't add to it, period. And I've done that, and I know I'm going to be in heaven because of that. So tonight, as we close this book, you prove yourself. You examine yourself. You think, how do I know I'm going to get to heaven? What if a news reporter came to this church, had the camera on you, 
bright lights, microphone up to you. They're interviewing you. Excuse me, you go to church or yeah? You're a Christian? Yeah. How do you know? What do you mean, how do I know? How do you know you're a Christian? Well, um, I've always gone to church. So you're going to get to heaven because you, yep, I've always gone to church and I'm a nice guy. And I recycle. Or, well, of course I'm going to go to heaven. Did you notice the fish on my car? And all of the Christian bumper stickers that I have never peeled off, even though the events are way out of date. Look, here I am. I am a Christian. I'm devoted. Somebody once said, it was in a song, if you were arrested for being a Christian, is there enough evidence to convict you? Bring in the evidence. Bumper stickers won't cut it. Church attendance won't cut it. Grandparents' commitment to Christ won't cut it. Has to be something personal. Is there an objective way to test and prove and examine yourself whether you are in the faith? Oh, absolutely. It's all over the Bible. And I could point to several passages, but I'm going to read a familiar one, I think, to you. It's one that John wrote in 1 John Listen to this. You can look at it. It's 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. It's very clear, very plain. By this we know that we know Him. That's important because he just got through saying, if we say that we know Him, but we don't walk in the truth and the light, we're liars. And by this we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. So how can you tell if you're a Christian? If you obey what He says. You can't walk around and go, I'm a Christian, I'm saved. I may sleep around and do drugs and disobey God every, but I'm a Christian. There's got to be some compelling evidence. You don't get saved by doing things, but if you're saved, the fruit will be there. It's the evidence. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought to himself walk just as he walked. Brethren, I write to you no new commandment, but an old commandment which you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. And again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because darkness has blinded his eyes. Loving other Christians, obeying Jesus Christ, are at least two tests to see whether you are in the faith or not. It was Dwight L. Moody who said every Bible must be bound in shoe leather. You know what that means, don't you? Got to walk it. Got to live it. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll memorize Scripture. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so John says, I'm not writing a new commandment to you. I had a roommate in California who was a very studious guy, a brilliant guy, still is, serving the Lord to this day, but very cerebral, would never do anything unless he really thought about it for a long time. So he decided, I think I'm interested in running. I hear it's healthy for you. It is an activity that I should like to be involved in. I said, great, Mark. Well, go for it. Buy some shoes. Let's go out and get an outfit and go run. Oh, no. But there is a book on running. And it was a bestseller at the time. It was called Running. It was a thick book, and he bought this book, and he read it over, and he underlined things, and he put things in yellow and little stars by it and little notes in the margin. It drove me nuts. I thought, are you like psycho or what? Just run. Oh, no, i got to understand how to run. How to run? A two-year-old can run. Just run. And for several months, he read this book, and he knew everything about running. But he wasn't a runner. Until one summer day, he put those shoes on. All those little passages were memorized. He got them all in order, and he did it. 
And I was there applauding him. He's actually running. Look at him. Or, or, or imagine a tennis player who knew all the rules and loved the rules and believed in the rules of tennis but never played. So think of all the people who come to church and believe the rules are important, the book is good, but don't obey it. It's not a Christian. So we should prove ourselves, examine ourselves to see whether... And I'll tell you why this is good. It takes the guesswork out of it. You don't have to run around your whole life guessing. Well, I know that there's no fruit in his life, but deep down, way, 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 way deep down, he really loves the Lord. He's really a Christian. The whole point is you don't have to dig way, way deep down. I think it's the whole point of you'll know them by their fruit. You don't go to an apple tree and go, I know there's really no life in this apple tree, but way deep down, deep in the roots, it's an apple tree. It really believe. Well, come on. There's got to be fruit. That is the point that is made over and over again in the Scripture. And the point here, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Prove yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are a counterfeit, as I mentioned, that's a, a good translation. You've been tested and found lacking would be a, a fuller translation. Disqualified. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Now, I pray to God that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do whatever, what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. Here's a group disqualifying us, and I just pray that you do the right thing, not because I want you to believe that we ought to be honored and esteemed. That's not why I'm saying this. Just that you would do the right thing, do no evil, and realize that we are qualified. There is fruit. There is evidence. There are those spiritual credentials. For, notice verse 8, we can do nothing against the truth but for the truth. That's a great, great verse. Because a person doesn't believe in what is the truth does not negate the truth. I don't believe in God. So? What do you mean so? There is no God because I don't, I don't care if you don't have to believe in God. There is a God. And there's evidence all over the place. Now you can be blind to it. You can be ignorant about it. You can make up all sorts of twisted, weird stuff. But it doesn't change the truth. And Paul knew you can't do anything. You know how he knew that? Because he tried it. He was the guy who was killing Christians. He asked for the special documentation from the high priests in Jerusalem to run off to Damascus and end this weird thing called Christianity once and for all. Uh, but he got interrupted, didn't he? And he got knocked onto his back and he saw a bright light and the Lord Jesus spoke to him and he got saved. And he realized, I didn't believe in the truth, but the truth was the truth and I can't do anything against the truth. Proverbs 21 tells us there is no counsel, there is no understanding, there is no wisdom against the Lord. God's counsel stands. We can do nothing against the truth but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. And this also we pray that you may be complete. You know what complete means, don't you? Mature would be a better translation for our purposes. He would say, you know what I pray for? I pray you grow up. Grow up. That's what Paul wrote to the Ephesians, that we may grow up into Christ in all things. Become mature. Become complete. We expect that with babies. We have a baby and we love the baby, but we don't love the baby staying a baby we like when the baby becomes a toddler. We take pictures of it. The shoes are bigger now. The outfits they've grown out of, they need bigger ones. We love it when the voice isn't that high-pitched squeal, but is more gentle and instead of crying would say, Excuse me, mummy. May I have a drink? We think that's better than... We like that better. That's maturity. We expect babies to grow. I have a 15 going on 30-year-old 
uh, 15-year-old going on 16-year-old, and I have loved watching all of the stages of my son's development. He's right in the middle of those teenage years. And I'll be honest with you, I love it. I've loved every phase, and I was warned at every phase. Oh, you say that now, but wait till he's two. Terrible twos. Oh, they're bad. So I was waiting for the bad to come. And they said, oh, you you haven't seen a four-year-old yet. You haven't seen a five-year-old tantrum yet. And on and on and on. You wait till he's a teenager. And of course they're growing up and they're becoming their own person and they don't agree with you and they think sometimes you're a dork and all of those things. (laughs) But didn't you do the same thing? Isn't that just part of growing up? Isn't that part of becoming independent? It's a wonderful thing to watch, that separation, that independence, that maturity. We expect that. So why shouldn't we expect that with a believer? Why should we always be excited about just an altar call? John said, I have no greater joy than to see my children walk in truth. Maturity ought to excite us. Wonderful to watch somebody grow up and become a mature believer, an adolescent, a teenage, a mature Christian. And that's Paul's prayer, that we may be made complete. Now, you can grow as much as you want, you know. Second Peter chapter 1 is a good thing. That would be a good meditation for bedtime. Second Peter, first chapter, just read that through about five times before you go to sleep tonight. God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. Wherefore, it has been given unto us great and precious promises that by these you may be a partaker of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Therefore, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control brotherly kindness and brotherly kindness love. And the list goes on. If these things are in you and abound, you'll never be barren nor unfruitful. It's all about growth. You can grow as much as you cooperate with Him. Therefore I write these things, being absent lest, being present, I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. Finally, brethren. Didn't it feel good to hear those words after 13 weeks? Finally, brethren. Adios. That would be a different translation, but... Farewell. Same thing. Adios. See you later. Farewell. Become complete. Or grow up. Mature. Become complete. Be fitted or equipped would be a good translation. Be of good comfort. Remember how this book began? God is the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort one another with the comfort we received of Him. So as we mature and God comforts us, we pass it on. We pass on the comfort. That's a great principle. Growth is impossible in isolation. If you isolate yourself, you cannot grow. You need others. We are sheep. And the sheep needs the sheepfold a lot. Iron sharpens iron. We need that accountability. You can't raise one Christian any more than you can raise one bee. You need a whole bunch of them together. And when people come into the prayer room and we counsel them after a service, we tell them that. You need fellowship. Like a coal in a barbecue. You light it, but you don't isolate it. You keep it with the bundle. And as that uh, coal gives off its heat to the other coals, they stay lit for a long time. But you isolate a coal. It will die out on its own while the others are burning. Too many Christians leave the pile. And there's such an emphasis today on individual Christianity instead of corporate, body life, local church Christianity. That's where you thrive. That's where you grow. Comfort one another or be of good comfort. Of one mind. It doesn't mean you will agree with everybody on everything. Unity does not mean uniformity. We should agree on the principles, on the main things. Keep the main thing the main thing. That's the main thing. Those are essentials of the Christian faith. You've heard Hank say that if you've listened to the afternoon radio. We agree on the essentials. But there are other things that we can debate but not divide over. There's latitude. 
We can be of one mind but not agree on everything. There are some who believe in pre-tribulation rapture. I'm one of them. Others are post-toasties. They think everybody's going through the tribulation. I love them. They're wrong, but I love them. Some are strict Calvinists, and usually angry most of the time. Others are leaning toward the Arminian theology, but still within the pale of Christianity. Some are very formal and like robes or formal wear, and others like blue jeans. But who cares? We can still be of one mind in the Lord and promote that unity in the bond of peace. Live in peace and the love of God and the peace and peace will be with you. Can I add a qualification to that live in peace? Remember what Romans 15 says? As much as is possible, live in peace with all men. I'm glad he wrote that because sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes you try to be peaceful with people who just (laughs) always want to fight. Don't want to be peaceful about it. Peaceable or peaceful. So as much as lies in you, just make sure that the rift isn't because of you, that you're not the irritant. But all of us know of irregular people in our lives. You can think of a couple. When I mention that word, you're going, bink, bink, bink. (laughs) But what you may not realize is that one of those bink, 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 maybe you in somebody else's mind. So as much as is possible, be a peacemaker. And you know what a peacemaker does? A peacemaker drains his moats. A peacemaker drains his moats. Instead of having this division, we try to drain the moat and create an access, a bridge of some kind. Greet one another with a holy kiss. You may want to do that in just a minute. It says holy kiss now. Not an unholy kiss, a holy one. We would give a holy hug or a holy handshake. The J.B. Phillips translation says, greet one another with a, a heartfelt handshake. That's, it's the equivalent. I remember the first time I saw Christians hug, and I honestly thought, they're weird. <laughs> this is really goofy. Because I wasn't into that stuff. I didn't, people would hug. Yeah. <laughs> How you doing? I was a, it's 1973. It was the hippie thing, and everybody was hugging. Hey, and then, then God got a hold of my life. It's a wonderful thing now to embrace one another in Christ and to love one another. That contact is so valuable and so vital. All the saints greet you. You know that a saint is somebody who lives here, not in heaven, until they die. When you die, you'll be a saint in heaven. Until then, you're a saint on earth. I like that. Saint Skip. (laughs) Has a ring to it. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. That's the book. We did it. Now, we're going to pray in just a minute and just let the Lord examine us and we're going to put the magnifying glass on ourselves and examine ourselves. And before you leave tonight, you may want to jot down a question about the church at Corinth or about an issue in Corinthians and put it in the agape box so we can take them and use and put your name on it as well. And uh, we can uh, use that next week and uh, have a great time together of giving a recap and answering some of the specific questions, have a time of worship, and then we're done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we love your word, how we have loved mining the depths of a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians to understand his mind, the original setting, the experience of the early church, what made them tick, what made them argue, what helped that and what healed that, what things were important to Paul, what things were not important to Paul. And we've examined that, Lord, and we've made a diligent and applicational study. And we don't want it to merely be exegetical and expositional, but also to be practical and personal and life-changing. 
And so, Father, we now submit ourselves to what we have read, and we do ask that by your help, you'd give us, first of all, a heart to obey, a mind and a will that is not recalcitrant against you, but very compliant to you, that we would be like soft clay in the potter's hands, that you could form us into the shape that you desire for us, because Father knows best. Lord, in these last few moments together, we examine ourselves, person by person. Are we truly in the faith? Are we truly Christians? Are we born again? Is there evidence? Has there been life change? Lord, these are very important questions to ask. These are the eternal big ones. Lord, we pray that your spirit might help as we examine ourselves just now. That we wouldn't be guilty of just being spectators, those who would just listen, because this is for us. But if as we examine our own hearts, we realize there's not a vital relationship as of a branch abiding in the vine, I don't have a life marked by love or by obedience. Then, Lord, I pray that we would not any longer be deceived by just a a mere subjective feeling that deep down somewhere there's life because life will manifest itself. Lord, while we're examining our own hearts tonight, we also realize that you have a solution. If we find ourselves weighed in the balances and found lacking, that there's a God on the other end who specializes in granting forgiveness. We heard tonight, Lord, from Dave and Carol about their own experiences. How you got a hold of their lives one day, one night. And Lord, as this is a historic day, and we were together at a historic moment, I pray that we would make spiritual history, some of us, by saying yes to the Savior tonight, turning to you, making it real, making it our own, making it personal, being born again, repenting of our sins, coming to you, so that we wouldn't have to hope so, but we'd know so.